0: Morning. You see, there's one microphone here today. We've been preparing you for this day when you have to listen to only me. (laughs) Little by little, I've been increasing my share of the hour, and now you've got me by myself. So if you want to leave because of that, now would be an opportunity for you. Yeah. Um, The chipmunks overlooked something or discarded it, I'm not sure which. But under Barbara's feet on the front row, we found a pair of glasses that were in the dirt. So if they're yours or somebody you know, uh, we'll put them right up here on the table. Uh, Maybe I begin with a couple of housekeeping things. First of all, I confused some of you yesterday by a statement I made in response to a question and I want to clarify it. It was my comments about bipolar disorder. Um, You know, the whole notion of mental health, which several of you have commented about, the whole study of, of how our human mind works is very recent in human history. We've studied the body, we, Human beings have studied the body for literally thousands of years. It has only been in the last several decades that we have begun to understand how the mind works. And we are learning huge amounts every year. So it makes any of us who have any acquaintance with uh, mental health issues, it ought to make us very humble. I certainly feel that way. And I, I don't want to come across as if I know everything there is to know about all of this. Um, so uh, let me reiterate something that I have at least said in some private conversations and want you all to know in case I left questions in your mind as well. I did not intend to diminish the seriousness or the impact of bipolar disorder yesterday. Uh, the personal turmoil that it creates is horrific. Uh, we, were, uh, we were recently told about a woman whom we have known for a long time who has uh, struggled with bipolar issues, the manic depressive cycles. She was recently diagnosed with stage four cancer. And she said to a mutual acquaintance, I would rather have stage four cancer with 18 months to live than to live with bipolar disorder. So I do not want in any way to sh- pretend as if this is an insignificant thing that doesn't create a personal pain and trauma in life. It drives many to erratic and irrational thought patterns and behavioral choices. Um, and even though the DSM manual, that's the mental health list of all the mental issues, even though the DSM manual has maintains two separate categories, one for mood disorders, which includes bipolar disorder, and another for psychoses, which includes things like schizophrenia, even with that distinction, any of those issues can create some significant turmoil and challenges in life. Not just personal pain, but family and society turmoil as well. Uh, the consequences of some of those erratic and what may seem to uh, people with um, some degree of mental disorientation may seem to them to be rational decisions and choices. Leave consequences that don't go away. Uh, we have talked with several of you this week who have friends or family members who have committed suicide. And you know better than Barbara and I what it's like to live with the, in the aftermath of that with all sorts of questions and doubts about what I might have been able to do to prevent this. Was I in some way uh, an influence that discouraged this person so much they didn't know how to cope? What eternal consequences might this have? And that raises for me the most important and what was in my mind yesterday as a definitive distinction. I see a significant separation between short-term, human, our lifetime consequences to mental diseases and the eternal impact of whatever happens to us in this life. So, for example, I do not believe that suicide prevents a person from the opportunity of living for eternity with God. Hmm? That belief is taught by some. It is a long-standing Roman Catholic doctrine that is based on behavior and works. It wars against salvation by faith. And a person who feels so disoriented and desperate that they would take their own life either to, uh, as an attempt to escape their own pain or thinking that that would be a relief to other people who have to put up with them. Any person who is that disoriented, I don't think can be held accountable. And I do not believe God will hold them accountable for that irrational choice. Hmm? Please. I am not aware of... Uh, Please. Samson, in Hebrews 11, will be saved if he oh, wonderful example. Thank you. Yeah? Hmm. Samson, who committed suicide, pulled the pillars down on him and the roof collapsed. Hebrews 11 talks about him as one of the faithful. Very interesting connection. Good for you. Thanks. Please. This man was born. Yes? The context in which we live makes a huge difference, doesn't it? Yes? Yes? hmm. hmm. On the other hand, God's judgment, eternal judgment of them, doesn't take away the results of the consequences of what life here now means for us. That's what was going through my mind yesterday. And when I talk about Anthony today, that's part of the background of that for me. Uh, And I I hope that distinction can be both uh, an encouragement and uh, bring some clarification for those of you whom I confused yesterday. Number two, bookkeeping thing. Speaking of books, here are some of our favorites on the subject of forgiveness. Do you know this La Sierra professor, Uh, Lourdes morales Goodmanson? Pacific Press, published her book just uh, a couple of years ago, I Forgive You, But We we Know We Should, Why Is It So Hard? Uh, She has taught classes on this subject for a number of years, and uh, even though the book is short, and you know all the words in it. They're perfectly understandable English words. The truth is, she gets at some pretty, pretty heavy duty issues here. And, uh, I find it to be a refreshing and very responsible look at the subject of forgiveness. Uh, so that's a good one for me. Uh, Lourdes, Morales, Goodmanson. Pardon? G-U-D-M-U-D-S-S-O-N. Sorry? Yeah, the ABC would be able to get it for you. I don't know if they have any with them or not. This is another Christian volume written by, uh, not an Adventist, but a good Christian woman, Choosing Forgiveness by Nancy DeMoss, D-E-M-O-S-S. I find this closer to what I have discovered about forgiveness than anybody else I've ever written about, uh, read um, and even she doesn't go quite as uh, doesn't make s- some of uh, the assertions that I will make this morning but I find her to be a refreshing approach. Uh, this is a devotional approach for women so it's very easily understood, uh, good applications uh, and good reference to biblical material published by I should remember, but don't. Moody Publishers, Conservative Christian Group. Huh? Nancy DeMoss, Choosing Forgiveness. From a secular point of view, I think Fred Luskin's material is the best. Uh, he began his research on forgiveness at Stanford, and it caught on so well that he now have runs his own company and does workshops and has a DVD series and a website by this title, Forgive for Good. Forgive for Good. It's good psychological stuff that pushes you to take control of your life and do something about these grievances that disorient you and the the burdens that you carry for long periods of time. Uh, And Fred uh, was very helpful to us at Walla Walla when a number of us did a a research study on forgiveness. We relied a lot on his material, and he was a consultant during that uh, period of time for us. Luskin, L-U-S-K-I-N, Fred Luskin. And his website is forgiveforgood.com. Have you seen the new DVD about Seventh-day Adventists done by uh, uh, Martin Dobblemeyer? Yes? And er, he's a filmmaker, cinematographer. Earlier, he did um, a work on forgiveness, the power of forgiveness. interviewed a number of contemporary experts, researchers in the field of forgiveness, and illustrates... Um, The notion of forgiveness and how it works by visiting with people in Ireland, the North Ireland conflict, uh, with uh, uh, the Amish who had the massacre of school children, uh, number uh, 911 victims. So he illustrates this very well, good, solid uh, material, and and quite uh, interesting to listen to. Those are some of our favorite sources. Sorry? Oh, Barbara wants, wants me to mention uh, Debbie Morris's book titled Forgiving Dead Man Walking. You may have remembered her story several years ago. She was one of the victims who was uh, taken with a, a friend, three friends actually. No, the, yeah, you want to tell the story? Well, I'll give you permission to talk a little, Barbara. <laughs>
1: Well, I especially found Debbie's book helpful, so it's one of my favorites. Uh, she was actually the victim, the, the woman victim in the story of that the film was about, Dead Man Walking, that Sean Penn and Susan Sarandon starred in. Um, the film, of course, combined several different scenarios and makes it into one person. But uh, the dead man walking was made very famous by a Catholic nun, Sister uh, Prejean, who was his spiritual advisor in prison. And Debbie, in her book, uh, explains how that whole film was made and this Sister Prejean went to visit her perpetrators, and nobody talked to her about it, and she was the survivor. And it, so she had quite a burden to carry for a long time, and this book tells her story about all the people along her pathway, including her mother, including God, including Sister Prejean, including her perpetrators, and how all that forgiveness took place. So it's a very powerful book. She's also a very good speaker. She came to Walla Walla one time and, and had a Vespers for us, and that's how we met her. So I, I would recommend her book. It's probably a bit old now, but I'm sure you can still find it. and It would be online somewhere, <laughs> Amazon. Forgiving. I don't know if the word the is in there, but Forgiving Dead Man Walking. Mm -hmm. Debbie Morris, M-O-R-R-I-S, D-E-B-B-I-E, I I believe she spells her Debbie. Uh,
0: The title of that book and uh, of the nuns' uh, earlier work about this um, man who um, kidnapped and repeatedly raped and tormented uh, this victim, the title comes from the Louisiana State Prison System, where when he was being taken to his death, they call down the hallways of the prison, "Dead Man Walking," referring to this um, perpetrator who will be soon put to death. Yeah. Wow, a little optimistic note to begin the day, huh? Yeah. I do want to pray, because what what my intention to outline today is um, some definitions of forgiveness, how it is we can become forgiving people, uh, and what we can do about that, and what we have to rely on God to do for us. That's the intention of the rest of our time together this morning. So may we pray together? Lord God, you know... The burden of each heart here, I uh, instantly ache when I think about what they carry. They need the Spirit and the touch of your presence to bring healing, a release of those burdens, and hope for the future. To that end, we wish the Spirit's interpretation of my attempts to describe what has become a wonderful reality. Thank you. Amen. Becoming a forgiving person is a gift, not an accomplishment. Was that clear from my story yesterday? I believe forgiveness is a gift, not a goal for me. And there are several things that make it difficult for us, challenges that stand in the way of our uh, becoming those kinds of people who experience the peace Jesus talked about, recorded by John, I've told you these things so that you'll have peace in the midst of trouble. Several things can stand in the way of our experiencing that level of peace and contentment. One of those is reality. This world is not a nice place. It is not always gentle. It is not always kind. It is certainly not always fair. And we do not always get what we deserve. And that's not only true for the mercy side of things, it's true for the justice side of things, too. The realities of this world place us in situations that we would like to forget we don't like to remain locked into miserable memories. Our wish to escape those makes it tempting for us to ignore or deny the realities in which we live. So, reality is one potential barrier to becoming a forgiving person. Because I believe, as you'll hear me say later on, that you can't forgive until you face reality. A second challenge we face is our own anger. I even call it rage in some cases. Probably not many of you can tell stories like I could about My growing up years and the struggle I had with my temper. Uh, My being much more heavily endowed with a good strong dose of that than anyone around me and certainly that I needed. At about the age of six, I think it was, my grandmother took me aside one day and had a pivotal uh, visit with me about my temper. And she prayed for me, and for many years I did not experience uh, the level of hostility and frustration and rage that would sometimes flash out of me that I had before. I think God helped me. And you heard me yesterday say that after Shannon was killed, that did not come for several months until I had worked through a lot of my grief. The sadness side of the coin was dealt with pretty thoroughly. And then came the rage. And ever since then, I have been much more keenly aware of my uh, flashes of anger than I had been for years. Our anger can get in our way and can so consume us with ourselves that we're not present or able to let go of those who create the frustrations for us. We get so caught up in that very destructive, miserable cycle that it just destroys life around us. (laughs) After uh, hearing a little conversation about this topic uh, one time... Our daughter told us about a television show that it reminded her of. And uh, we got a clip from that TV show as an illustration of how destructive anger can be.
1: Excuse me. I know you didn't think anyone would catch you, but you just slammed your door into my car. The least you can do is say you're sorry, lady. I'm not to take that tone. It's not like I'm hurting your resale value. I'm sorry. See? Like that.
0: missed the last phrase, she says, I don't know what happened. (laughs) It, It makes the point, doesn't it? Wow. And so easily we find ourselves doing that. It launches us into the stratosphere and we no longer have rational control over what's happening to us. So rage is one of those barriers to forgiving. Another, and I'll stop the list at this one, another major factor that is a significant barrier for us in letting go of hurts and forgiving other people is revenge. Revenge. I mentioned the other day uh, the old Irish toast. Here's to my enemies' enemies. Let somebody else get them. We want that taken care of. They deserve to feel like I feel. Someone has said that uh, revenge is like drinking a glass of poison and waiting for the other person to die. It kills us. It poisons us inside. It destroys the happiness and peace we would like to experience personally. We're miserable to live with. Revenge just does not work. An illustration of this one came to us uh, via, uh, again, a friend who heard us make some comments about this subject and told us about a movie, fairly recent movie, titled The Interpreter. The story is about a family in South Africa, in white South Africa, before... um, the country was uh restabilized, Mandela was still in prison, racial tensions were extremely high. And this white South African family uh came under attack by um, the South African people. The mother and father in this family were murdered and the children escaped. One daughter ended up coming to America. And through a sequence of events in her life, became an interpreter, a language interpreter at the United Nations in New York City. Part of the movie focuses on the visit of the African leader who took over the country after uh, after the whites were taken out of power. The president of this country was coming to visit and make a speech at the United Nations. The Secret Service heard that there was a plot against his life. And in researching this, they discovered that this woman, her family was killed by this current African leader's uh, forces, military forces. He was responsible for her parents' death. And they presumed that she was the one who was plotting to kill him while he was at the U.N., in this scene that we want to play for you, she is confronted by uh, a Secret Service agent, played by Sean Penn, and she, played by Nicole Kidman, um, is faced with the question of why they should not suspect her as the perpetrator of this plot. Hmm? So that's a little background now to an illustration of how revenge can be so destructive.
1: Nicole Kidman's part is a little bit hard to understand, and there are subtitles on this all the time. So if you want to move in so you can see them, that might be helpful.
2: <laughs> Everyone who loses somebody wants revenge on someone, on God, if they can't find anyone else. But in Africa, in Metubo, the the coup believed that the only way... To end grief is to save a life. If someone is murdered, a year of mourning ends with a ritual that we call the drowning man trial. There's an all-night party beside a river. At dawn, the killer is put in a boat, he's taken out on the water, and he's dropped, he's bound so that he can't swim. The family of the Devon has to make a choice. They can let him drown or they can swim out and save him the coup believe that if the family lets the killer drown they'll have justice but spend the rest of their lives in mourning but if they save him if they admit that life isn't always just that very act can take away their sorrow Vengeance
0: is a lazy form of grief. You catch that last line? Vengeance is a lazy form of grief. Uh... I don't, I, I don't spend much time with Hollywood productions, but that is a classic statement. Vengeance is a lazy form of grief. The movie is titled The Interpreter. The Interpreter. So, we have a number of things to overcome, barriers that try to prevent us from being in an environment in which forgiveness is a viable possibility. There's another thing that makes it discouraging uh, for us to think about forgiving. It is because we so easily and often misunderstand what forgiving is. So let me retrace for you, first of all, some categories of things, the, the labels on them I've made myself. But the categories of, uh, of these definitions rise largely out of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa. How do we bring these two populations of people, the blacks who have been held down for so many generations and the whites who now are losing and have lost power and the bloodshed and struggle between them? Bishop Tutu, you know, that Methodist minister, uh, facilitated a kind of uh, reconciliation among those people and did it in some very specific and concrete ways. One of those ways was by reinforcing an accurate understanding of what forgiveness really means. First of all, several things that forgiving is not. First, forgiving is not forgetting. We we hear the little old adage, forgive and forget. We even, as Christians, sing about that. Wonderful, wonderful Jesus, he will forgive and forget. This is the hope of the sinner when Satan's trials beset, etc. It's a wonderful message spiritually, but at a human level, it could create chaos for us. If we if we forgot about all the bad things that happened to us, then we run away from reality, like I mentioned earlier. And escaping reality does not solve the problem. Let me tell you about a woman I got acquainted with. By the time I knew her, she was in her I guess we first got acquainted when she was probably in her 30s. By the time the incidents that became most telling for her uh, recurred, she was in her 40s. While she was growing up as a child, she had been severely physically abused by her father, whipped and beaten, demeaned made to feel absolutely worthless. She spent hours of her day hiding under a porch at the entrance of their house, isolated from everybody. And in adulthood, when she began to have her own family and her own daughter came to be two, three years old, some of these memories started to resurface for her. we're we're knowing now that that's more than an occasional occurrence, that some of our bitter childhood days come back to us when our own children come to that period of time. These memories were so severe that she had ignored them for decades, had not thought about them, wished they would go away, tried to forget them. But when they resurfaced, they absolutely paralyzed her adult life and it was not until she was willing uh, to look clearly at them and to re-experience those things that she came to the place where she could let go of the pain and move on with an adult life. So, forgiving is not forgetting. Number two, forgiving is not condoning. When you forgive someone for an offense, it does not mean that uh, you think, There was nothing wrong with that offense, that you're condoning it as a good and upright action that you, for some reason, were hurt by, but you shouldn't have been. No, we're not saying it condones that behavior at all. We saw a little illustration of this not long ago. We were uh, at a gathering with a number of families, several of whom we didn't know before. We observed a mother and two children. Uh, The children were close enough in age that there was a good deal of uh, rivalry between the two of them. And at one particular moment, evidently one of them had done something hurtful to the other. Mom quickly intervened before this escalated into a, a serious physical battle and told the one who had initially done the hitting, Say you're sorry. And this child, pouting, said, I'm sorry. And then Mother said to the other child, Say it's okay. And both Barbara and I, while I'm sure this mother's intentions were perfectly good, I'm sure she meant accept the apology. What it suggested to Barbara and me is, it was okay for him to hit you in the first place. Say it was okay. There's nothing wrong with that. No! Forgiving is not condoning bad behavior. Okay? So to think about forgiving someone doesn't mean you have to accept whatever they have done, no matter how horrible or horrific it was. Number three, forgiving is not excusing. We don't just let them out of taking the natural consequences for what they have done. This is not an escape route for the perpetrator. Forgiving is not excusing. Years ago, I was asked uh, by telephone to do some pre-marriage counseling for a couple. That's one of the things I enjoy more in life than anything else. I love to anticipate a happy future for a couple. And even though I have a fairly rigorous reputation about that, um, because I do want them to face reality pretty squarely, I tell them right up front that my intention is is to try to identify for them what the most probable tensions are they are likely to face in their married life and then explore with them what their strengths are to see if their strengths can compensate for those potential challenges. This uh, this phone call was an invitation to do uh, pre-marriage counseling and I was told we would need to meet at the Washington State Penitentiary in Walla Walla because the male fiancé was an inmate. I did not know at that time what he was there for, but his release date had been established and he was going to be getting out before too much longer. We went through that series of pre-marriage counseling and this couple were married for some time and then we heard the horrible news that his parole had been broken and he was going back to prison. He was in prison for rape. And as part of his parole conditions, he uh, was not to, of course, have sexual contact with anyone but his wife. And he broke that and went back to prison. He got treatment in prison, was released a second time. This time... He broke his parole by peeping in someone else's windows that night. The third time he was put back in prison, he had an affair with a woman in the church, Adventist church, where he was attending. And this summer, um, he is being released again. Should we say that because Joe accepted the Lord and was baptized and became a Christian, that we excuse all of those past misdeeds, those attacks on other people? Forgiving is not excusing, is it? Forgiving is not excusing. Now, let me come to uh, the final one for me, and it is usually the most difficult one for good Christian listeners like you to get your mind around. I do not believe that forgiving is reconciling. Sometimes we Christians think that if you've really forgiven someone, it means you're ready to let them move into the house and live with you. That you want to be next door neighbors forever. That this relative who sexually abused you as a child is now a safe person, in whose company you ought to be happy to spend your time. I'm glad to see some of you shaking your heads and know about that one. I've been confronted several times by Christians who say, "But isn't that what God's all about? Isn't God wanting to bring people together?" Absolutely right. True enough. But sometimes the natural consequences of our decisions and behaviors are so destructive that in this life it's impossible for us to live harmoniously together. Let me give you a biblical illustration of this that helps me uh, reconcile this idea to my mind. You remember Paul and Barnabas's first missionary trip. Great reaching out to the Gentile world, which uh, Bud Roberts reminded us of this morning, came as a result of Peter's vision. A whole new world out there waiting to hear who Jesus was and how he related to us. So Paul and Barnabas prepare themselves to go on this trip in the Mediterranean world. And uh, Barnabas wants to take along his nephew. And sure enough, young, enthusiastic, John Mark goes along with them, But he begins to whimper and whine. He's homesick for Mommy. And finally, Paul gets fed up with it. John Mark goes back home, deserts the missionary tour. After that tour is all over, they go back home, kind of regroup themselves, tell stories about the wonderful things that are happening out in the Mediterranean world. They get ready to go again. And do you remember the, the argument between Paul and Barnabas? Barnabas is ready to take John Mark again, and Paul is saying, forget that little twerp. I'm not going to waste my time preparing supplies and adequately helping this kid come when he messed us up last time. This is a man's world, and he wasn't ready for it. No reconciliation there. They could not resolve that problem. And the result of that lack of reconciliation between Paul and Barnabas was what? Doubled the number of missionary trips. Exactly right. We have two teams now instead of one. So reconciliation is not always the magic answer to human conflict. Sometimes we need to recognize that it's impossible. In the future, I believe God will bring that about. But for now, it is not always the answer. So, forgiving is not forgetting, it's not condoning, it's not excusing, it's not reconciling. What is forgiveness, then? Forgiving, I would say, first of all, begins with facing reality. We overcome that challenge to forgiveness and we accept for ourselves what happened to us. We experience our hurt. We acknowledge what another has done to us to offend us. And we face reality. Number two, forgiving is confronting the truth. And as often as possible, I think it is healthy to confront the perpetrator. Not to avoid the source of pain. Now, that isn't always possible. Uh, on the Walla Walla campus, um, w- one of my um, extracurricular responsibilities is that I have been appointed by several university presidents now as the sexual harassment officer. We would hope that would never happen uh, on a Christian campus. And in m- most cases, it is, uh, it is not at all intentional. It is misunderstandings between people. But the truth is, it raises tensions and stresses And particularly when one person is in a supervisory or responsible position and another one is in a subservient position, it is extremely difficult for those two people to try to work out that difficulty between them. Sometimes we need an arbiter, uh, a go-between, an advocate. And sometimes direct confrontation may not be possible, but I, I would encourage us to do that whenever it's feasible. Uh, overcome our hesitancies, and approach that perpetrator with our pain. You know, the, the the contemporary psychological world has all kinds of very good and stable advice as to how best to do that. You use I messages, not you messages, instead of saying, You jerk! This is what you said about me, and it was not true. You use I messages, and you say, I felt very hurt. When someone told me that you had said such and such. Huh? So many of those good human uh, approaches we can use, but confronting the truth is an important part of forgiving. Third, forgiving is expecting consequences, it is accepting consequences. I can think of all kinds of illustrations. uh, I'm touched especially this week by those of you who have been touched by the reality of another person's suicide. Part of dealing with that truthfully on our own is accepting the reality of what happened not minimizing it. And I'll come in a bit to talk about some tangible ways we can, I think, go about coping with the truth. But we must face the truth. We've got to face what that means to us. We've got to face our feelings about the one who hurt us. And we've got to accept consequences for that. In Anthony's case, uh, that faces us with some delicacies, some of which we're still working on years later. Uh, Yesterday, you heard Barbara and me talk about uh, the different ways in which we approach uh, our understanding of what may have motivated Anthony's uh, killing of Shannon. I would wish for myself that accepting consequences might apply more to me than to Anthony. By that I mean, if I get fixated on making sure he gets what he deserves, that he is locked up for the rest of his life, or that he has electrical energy or a dose of medication that will kill him forever, If I fixate on that, then I'm locked into the rage and revenge stuff, which prevents the real forgiveness. I don't want to do that. (laughs) Another way to express the negative aspect of that is to talk about these types of justice. Uh, The theoreticians who write about this have identified three types of justice uh, that I've read about. One, uh, and the most destructive kind, I think, is what is defined as retributive justice. You know the word retribution. We want to take it out on these people. Retributive justice. Uh, Sometimes, I think you probably said this, Barbara, uh, that when people say, we want justice... What we really want is revenge, huh? And that's retributive justice. Uh, The next level of justice that I would still hope I could avoid is defined as punitive justice. These people deserve to be punished. So in the legal system, we define uh, scope of sentences for various crimes. You steal my pencil, you get wrapped from the teacher. You steal my automobile, that's grand theft larceny and you're liable for X number of years in prison, etc. Huh? We have a certain amount of punishment that is allocated depending on the severity of the crime. Punitive justice. But the problem is that if you only get punitive justice at the end of serving the sentence, there may have been no change whatsoever in the, in the criminal, in the perpetrator. So you may not have accomplished anything for society at large, but only that they have paid their debt to society. You know that phrase. Huh? So I'm not very enamored with punitive justice either. I'm more intrigued with the third level that theoreticians define, and that is a level called restorative justice. Uh, In the 70s, in the penal system in California at least, uh, there was a significant amount of attention paid to that. Prison was not intended simply to be a warehouse for people who were serving their time, and we were anxious to get them out whenever we could without worrying at all what happened to them while they were in prison. But a significant amount of resources and energy was spent doing what we could to try to Elevate the moral capacity and uh, human sensitivity of these people so that when they went back into society, they would be able to live as good, solid citizens. That makes good sense to me. You restore people to a healthy way of life. Restorative justice. But even that doesn't satisfy all my wishes for justice. If I'm going to accept consequences, how do I ever come to trust? 1025. I could tell you long stories about this stuff, couldn't I? I, uh, How do I ever come to trust Uh, Susan Aitken, for example? Do you know that name? One of the Manson family women. I remember seeing her in church one Sunday morning in prison in California, and I was absolutely stunned. That this woman, who would have been part of the kind of massacre that she participated in, would be coming to church on Sunday, and I said something to the chaplain uh, who was supervising me at the time. This must, this must indicate a revolutionary change in this woman's life. And he said to me, "No, not necessarily. She simply transferred her allegiance." from one male authority figure to another from charles manson to jesus christ so he was much less certain about the restoration that had come to her than i would have assumed was the case i remember another woman who uh, at a worship service in the prison was being released the following week and she was exhilarated just wonderfully happy about being back out on the streets She was saying goodbye to these other women that she had met in prison that she would never see again, etc. And she was really going to do it right this time. In less than a month, she was back. I would like to talk about another level of justice, which I think in some cases gives credence to accepting the consequences. And that level of justice is protective justice. There are some crimes which are so horrific and our ability to accurately assess the transformation in prisoners is so limited that society needs to be protected indefinitely from those people. On the other hand, that does not say to me one single thing about their eternal fate. And I'll tell you that for me, uh, while on the one hand I am very hesitant, probably oversensitive, frankly, to finding any way to excuse what Anthony did to Shannon, I think... And who knows for sure ahead of time, but I think I am ready, as I anticipate the possibility, I think I am ready to spend eternity with Anthony. That, it seems to me, is the the ultimate mark of what God has done for us as the victims. Can we come to the place where in a perfect environment where this person's background has been taken into account, where uh, their willingness to surrender themselves to God is recognized, where they have accepted God's gift of salvation to them? In that kind of environment, are we ready to be content to live with them for eternity? And all of a sudden, forgiveness starts to focus more on me than it does on the perpetrator. Hmm? What can we do? How can we bring this about? What, From a human point of view, what are the natural acts and thoughts and processes that we can use uh, to enhance the possibility that we would become forgiving people? Uh, Let me just name these and not... Not elaborate much on them. From a human point of view, we can, number one, reframe our understanding of the situation. Barbara's a little better at this with Anthony than I am, I think. How do their circumstances influence our understanding of their choices? probably more e- more easily seen by us in cases um, where loved ones have committed suicide. Our human tendency, I would think, would be to be angry at them. I've heard some people be very frank about those feelings and say, how could you do this to me? Look at the mess you've left me in now. I have to take care of all the family affairs. I have to try to straighten things out financially. I have to live with this burden of having been with someone, of loving someone who couldn't cope with life. This is a terrible thing you've left me to cope with. There there would naturally be some frustration and anger uh, involved with that. What do we do about that? We can reframe or rethink our understanding of that person's choice. Some of you have mentioned to me that you are aware that from that uh, victim's point of view, suicide was actually intended to be a gift to all of you who are survivors. They thought it would be easier for you to live without them. It is also true for some others that they are so uh, overwhelmed that they cannot think clearly and they see no other escape than to stop their own life. So reframing, you get the idea of what we're talking about here? You look at the circumstance from the other person's point of view. Number two, you restore an attitude of love toward that person. But if we had lots of time, we could talk about this for a whole week in itself. How do we go about doing that? Much more complicated to do than to say, Love one another as I have loved you. Yeah, well, that sounds nice. How does one make it happen? Do you pretend that it's true before it is true? Do you act like it's the case, even when it doesn't feel right? Or do you work on the feelings, and then when the feelings are sorted out, then you can start behaving that way? I would say yes and yes. Our behavior affects our attitudes, and our attitudes affect our behavior. So we need to do it all at the same time somehow. And uh, we can do some practicing, some experimenting of things that don't feel natural even before it changes the feeling. I remember as a child uh, learning to play baseball. And then in my teenage years, I went for the first time to a golf course. Any of you ever make that transition from swinging a baseball bat to swinging a golf club? The way they told me to swing a golf club was absolutely clumsy. Clumsy it would not work. I knew it would not work. It was impossible. You can't hold your elbow against your side and swing a club well. You can't, uh, etc. Huh? But you do it the way you're supposed to do it until it becomes natural and then it starts to work. So in some cases, you do place the behavior there and let that transition your attitude And in other cases, you work on the attitude and it affects your behavior. Yeah, Reframing. Restore the attitude of love. Third, choose to let go of your grievance. Many human relationships revolve around who has the power over the other person. Who is in charge here? We, I, I mentioned to you the sexual harassment things, where one person who is a supervisor or a teacher has some control over the destiny of another, and that other person feels powerless in that context. Hello, Ojeda, oh, hey, I just see you. Uh, yep, we got to have a hug, Dulce. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Choosing to let go of our grievances. One of the ways in which we unconsciously attempt to maintain control over somebody else who has hurt us is to keep our anger. If we maintain our anger toward that person, then we have a hold on them, we think. We tell ourselves that. The truth of the matter is, the longer you hang on to your anger, the more control they have over your life. It works the opposite of what it seems like to us. So we need to practice choosing to let go of our grievance. Uh, In the old style, five-day plan to stop smoking, one of the things they emphasized over and over and over again is that smokers need to say many times every day to themselves, I choose not to smoke. You've taught some of those classes or been through them, I'm sure. I choose not to smoke. I had a church elder... Uh, in a congregation in Oregon who used to teach these classes with me. And he would tell people who came to the class that there were times in his life, 17 years after he had never smoked a cigarette, when he would still reach into his pocket, wanting one. And he had to continually tell himself, I choose not to smoke. By telling ourselves that in our brain, we convince our body that it's true. So, your choice to let go of your grievance is not a magic solution. It won't instantly take place. It is, like Bud Roberts was saying this morning, a present tense verb. Over and over and over and over, we have to repeat that. But we need to keep doing it. I choose to let go of my anger toward this person. I choose not to hold them responsible for my feelings. I choose to release Anthony from my rage. Hmm? Over and over. Question. Yes, ma'am? Um, what you
2: you're doing? You're to yep.
0: Yeah. and it comes back again and then you start realizing that you're doing little things yep. to undermine them and you and you say something and um oh my you're a plant in the audience for me. This is a perfect transition to the next session. I wish we had a whole week to talk about salvation because these same principles apply in very concrete ways to how it is we overcome sins in our lives, how we become God's people. How do we deal with that? It happens all the time to me. It happened to me at the hotel counter last night when I asked if we could have a late checkout today. And they said, sorry, somebody's coming into your room. I feel the tingling in my stomach. This is, this is humiliating that we are so easily irritated, isn't it? But it does come rushing back. What do we do? And there are some cases that are so severe and so difficult that the human things are not adequate. That's why I love what Fred Luskin suggests, but it's not enough for some of us. Some of us can't do it by human will alone. We need some miraculous help. So what is it God suggests to us? I want to get through this, and then we'll see if we have time. And if not, I'll be glad to visit with you afterward. What does God suggest we do about learning to become forgiving people? Have you taken the prayer walk yet? It's a wonderful little opportunity. I hope if you haven't gotten there, you get a chance to go. In one of those stations comes a phrase that I have misunderstood almost all of my life. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. That's been the message of God to me. What must I do? I need to forgive other people so that God will forgive me. I need to generate forgiveness, I need to initiate that goodwill toward others in order for God to be able to initiate His gifts to me. I am responsible for forgiving other people, and then God will forgive me. Forgive your debtors, and I will forgive you. That's the prerequisite to your forgiveness. That's what it always sounded like to me. You forgive other people first, then you come back to me. God so loved the world that He requires you first to become an obedient, law-keeping, loving person, and then He will send His only Son. Whoa, there's a there's a contrast here, isn't there? If we understood the Lord's Prayer in that way it would sound as if forgiving is our assignment. And once we satisfied our assignment, then God would respond to us. We had to earn God's favor before he would listen to us. That's what it would sound like, isn't it? But you know that that doesn't fit with the gospel that we recognize in the New Testament. And we could look up lots of texts to illustrate that reality. What is it that Jesus taught about forgiving? Uh, let me have you look with me at Acts chapter 5 verse 31. Acts chapter 5 verse 31. Peter's sermon here to the Jews in Jerusalem. Acts 5.31, God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins. Jesus' job is to give forgiveness and to give repentance. It isn't something we generate or initiate. It comes from God. What has happened to us in this process, however, is that we have become the focus of attention. When we cannot forgive, regardless of all the things we try, we then become the person with the problem. You following this transition? We are no longer the victim, we're the perpetrator here now. We're the ones who are causing the difficulty. And God deals with us first. God gives us repentance. And then He gives us forgiveness. So, our task when we recognize we are not forgiving is to face the reality about ourselves. And that's what that Sabbath morning in church did to me. It wasn't just the little things I had done. It was who I am at the core of my identity. I am a despicable, vengeful, angry human being in desperate need of repentance and forgiveness from a loving God. So I face the reality about myself. I accept God's gift of repentance and I accept God's gift of forgiveness. And then, final text. I'm sorry I get so carried away, but I love this subject. You just might imagine. Luke 24. Luke wrote the book of Acts, too, you remember. So he's the one who records Peter's words and attributes Jesus as the source of repentance and forgiveness. And Luke also, in his gospel, uh, chapter 24, describes the story about Jesus appearing to his disciples after his resurrection. And I'm going to go right straight to uh, verse 45. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance and forgiveness of sins. Same phrase, right? Jesus himself saying again, repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations. Beginning at Jerusalem. Note the next phrase. You are witnesses of these things. My Christian challenge is to face myself, to be overwhelmed by my own guilt, to accept God's gift of repentance for who I am and God's gift of forgiveness for who I used to be. And then I become a witness To what Jesus did for me. That's all. I just tell the story. And my training, as Carl reminded us last night, the training I do for myself is not to forgive everybody that hurts me. My training is to be a good witness, a good example of what forgiven people look like. What does God make of people that He has forgiven? And the more clearly I can represent that to those around me, the better witness I become. And by magic, I can tell you that when we focus on that side of the equation, the other side takes care of itself. God took care of Anthony and God took care of my other hurt All I had to do was to be grateful for what he had done for me. The twist for me in this whole subject is that in order for me to forgive the hard cases, I have to see myself as a perpetrator, not a victim. As the cause of trouble, not not the recipient of it. And that changes everything. Okay? Thank God for that. Um, let me close with a little benediction from the book of Romans. If I had another week, I'd talk to you about three or four chapters right out of the middle of Romans. Where did we find this this morning, Barbara? 15? 13. 15. 13. Yeah. Romans 15, verse 13. A uh, prayer and benediction for all of you from us. A prayer that was um, used by John Brunt at the close of Shannon's funeral service. John now pastors in Azure Hills, and I don't know whether you're, as you're studying your Sabbath School of Lessons this quarter, are uh, reading this book on Romans that he wrote to accompany the Sabbath School of Lessons, The Redemption of Romans. Romans 15:13 May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit Amen Amen We're really out of time. I'll be happy to visit with individually any of you who would like. Thanks very much.